0: Welcome into another episode of Patrick Jones Baseball, where we find the best tools to build the best players. Hope everyone is having a great start to their week. Uh, Summer baseball is in uh, full, full go. It's been fun to be able to watch some of the guys I work with out playing games in the summertime been traveling a little bit, going to some different tournaments. So a lot, a lot of players out there for sure. And it's it's fun to be able to to talk to a lot of college coaches too and see, you know, what what specifically they're looking for and, um, you know, some of the players that they're going after. So it, it's, it's been a, a fun dynamic. Um, in today's episode, we actually have a, a recruiting coordinator um, at Creighton University, Connor Gandese. Connor is their recruiting coordinator and he is their hitting coach. Uh, he's a great guy. I've actually, when I was in Omaha a couple of months ago, and I stopped by Creighton and, and talked with him and hung out a little bit. They've got some really, really good stuff going on there from a, just a development standpoint, leadership standpoint. It's, it's cool to be able to see them in action with, with their players. And in today's episode, Connor talks about how they go about recruiting at Creighton, how he, util- how he utilizes the transfer portal. You know what specifically is he looking for when he when he's recruiting a player? Who is he talking to? We also get into some developmental aspects and talk about how they how he likes to do things at Creighton in the fall, um, when he when he gets players back on campus. And lastly, we talk about summer baseball too. So we talk about summer baseball, not just for high school but for college players. So if you're a coach, if you're a parent, if you're a player, and you want more information, you want more tips on hitting and help with college recruiting. Make sure to head to PatrickJonesBaseball.com slash develop. Put your first name and email in, and you'll be sent um, information over time on recruiting and hitting content. So PatrickJonesBaseball.com slash develop, first name and email in. Ladies and gentlemen, here is now my episode with Connor Gandese. All right, now we welcome on Connor Gandasi. Connor, thanks for coming on the show today. Absolutely, Patrick. I appreciate you having me on. So, you know, I've been talking to a lot of different parents lately and, and players at and, and various levels. And one of the things that continues to come up is uh, the transfer portal. So, for those who, who don't really know from like a college coach's experience and, and point of view, like, how do you utilize the transfer portal?
1: Yeah, it's a really good question. It's definitely a common question that we've run across with our recruits and our parents, but um, at Creighton, we use it to kind of fill in some needs right away. So you might have a big player that's been drafted. You might have a big player that's leaving um, and you need to kind of fill that void right away. Um, You know, obviously we had a very talented first baseman this year. He provided a lot of offense. We need to kind of fill, have somebody kind of step in that has experience um, and that has the ability to kind of give us a, kind of a, a boost, you know, when you lose such a talented player with, with what we have. Um, I can't speak for all schools. I would say there are some schools that are more uh, I guess amassing talent and, and hoarding talent, if you would. Um, and frankly, you can only play nine players at a time. So you kind of scratch your head a little bit at, at what some places are doing, uh, but everybody's got a different program. But in our case, the way we use it is kind of fill a a need right away. I would say probably the most comparable is what people have done with junior college players in the past. Um, People would bring in junior college players to play right away, to provide uh, an instant impact on your program. And now we have the ability to do it with kids that have been in college, you know, division one, two or three. And that's certainly a huge draw for, for universities.
0: Yeah, that's that's a really good point. And it, it's interesting that, you know, the, the the transfer portal, it seems like it has taken off really in the last year or two. Has it affected how you go about recruiting at all? Like for high school? kids? Um,
1: yeah, I think you're you're a little bit more selective on your high school kids now. Um, I think in the past, maybe people were willing to take more chances. And I think now, you're seeing okay. Let's find the six or seven best kids we can get from the high school level, and then let's save some spots for the transfer portal. Let's, you know, and we still recruit junior college kids. I don't think that should be, you know, lost in translation. I think we we try to find just the best players we can. But I think you got to find that common blend of young and old. Um, I still want to recruit heavy high school because I think that's how your culture is made. And those kids you're going to have for a longer period of time. Not every single transfer portal kid uh, is transferring after their freshman year. Perhaps you get a grad guy, you only have them for one year. Um, While they can make an impact on the field, and I'm not saying they can't make an impact in the clubhouse, you can have those high school kids for three and possibly four years. And I think that's how strong cultures are built
0: inside your program. So I'm
1: still a huge proponent of finding those talented high school
0: players. How do you go about uh, being able to identify those high school players?
1: Uh, definitely trusted contacts. Um, you know, so we have our our, our guys that we really trust um, inside certain, you know, states and, you know, we still utilize the PBR scouts uh, that are on the ground in the states and perfect game scouts for that matter. I don't want to get yelled at by, by both parties, but um, you know, I, I think you, you still have the high school coaches that play an integral role um, in finding and, and helping, you know, move along with their kids. So it's kind of a, a lot of different people that you're getting information from, but you're always going to have your strong, trusted people inside the community that you've used for over a period of time. Um, and then frankly, you know, we'll have kids that show up to camp that are talented. We'll have kids that email us that we don't know about. I mean, there's a lot of kids out there. So as good of a, a recruiter as you think you are, there's somebody new that pops up that you haven't heard about, um and so we still check our emails every single day i mean we'll probably get 60 70 80 emails a day from kids and you gotta you gotta dive through it it's a lot you know especially when you're many a day it is a lot yeah and i don't know if it's just because kids are panicking because of the transfer portal um but you know we we talk to everybody we talk to high school coaches we talk to travel ball coaches we talk to pbr scouts and i mean we even talk to the pro scouts they might be scouting a talented kid and there's an underclass player that really impresses them. And they'll reach out to us and say, Hey, at high school X, you know, this kid's really good. You need to keep an eye on him. So we try to gather as much information. And then from there we try to, you know, I guess organize it to the best of our ability.
0: One of the questions that I, that I had to is you, you know, you guys as as a college coaches and recruiters you are out watching players and some of these tournaments, there's clearly 30, 30 recruiters there, 30 coaches looking at players. But is there ever a time where you make it a point if there's a player that you're interested in to maybe go to one of his games in hopes that nobody, no other coach is there and you don't want to show your face so you can see how he how he acts and plays when nobody's there?
1: Yeah, I think that's really important. I think sometimes you get players that are have scout eyes, and they are going to act I Like that, I like that. You know, they're going to look around, and you know, if you're standing next to the dugout, they're going to turn around and see who's you know watching them or, or who's in the crowd and things like that. So, we're definitely aware of of the kids that kind of scan the crowd. Um, if I don't want to hide out, I like to sit next to the dugout because I like to see how they interact with with their uh, teammates and things like that. But um if you really want to go after a kid like you're all in you're 100% all in you want to go incognito and you don't wear your team's logo and things like that uh i think it definitely gives you a feel the problem is you know you kind of stand out like a sore thumb sore thumb you kind of just show up and it's like all right he's obviously not a parent and he doesn't have a he doesn't have a little kid with him so he's not going as a fan so who is this guy so um it's it's a little bit harder easier said than done but um, I do like to see how the kids interact. And that's why I think it's so important that you talk to the high school coaches and then you talk to the summer ball coaches because the high school coach might be the math teacher or the high school coach might be the history teacher. And you can get an inside look at that. On the flip side, the travel ball coach is with this kid for three months, usually traveling in a van, traveling the country. They're in hotels with them. So you can get a lot of insight on whether or not this person is a quality person.
0: How much time do you usually spend scouting a player, talking to coaches about um, like all of, it, all of this background before you actually make an offer?
1: For hitters, it's hard, um, you know, it, and it depends on what year that they are. You know, if, if it's a currently right now, if it's a 2024, um, you're probably having a little more time than you would with the 2023. So with the 2024, or 2025, you'd like to see, you know, 15 to 20 at bats if possible. So maybe a little bit more. If the kid says, hey, I'm not deciding till the end of the summer, um, frankly, you have more time to make your decision because then you can see as many games as you want. If it's a pitcher, it's a little bit, you know, it's a little bit easier, I would say. You can kind of see, okay, this guy projects a little bit. The arm works. He's athletic. He's got a good feel for his breaking ball. It's a little bit easier, in my opinion, to project pitchers than it is hitters because you can show up to, you know, five straight games and he might hit a bunch of balls hard, but doesn't have any hits to show for it. Um, or if you go to the high school games, they might pitch around him because he's the best player in the state. So, um, we try to see as much on the field action as we can in terms of off the field. Obviously that's where it comes into play with finding your trusted people that you trust and you can talk to and and try to get some insight on the players. So collectively, I would say it's case by case. I know that it's not a specific answer that you want to hear, but it certainly is different um on what year their timeline how much time do you have to work with the kid or if he's a kid that's like hey i want to make a decision by the end of july then you got to speed up your whole timeline
0: how, how does it work when you have tons like maybe not tons but several offers out to several different kids because you don't know i mean you can't just put all your eggs in one basket and if the kid decides not to commit so is it common for coaches to have several offers out and then it's just first come first serve just because you ha- you're on a budget
1: I agree. Uh, And yes, um, I would say you still have your tier one and tier two players that you really like. Um, And then you have, you know, kind of a backup behind that. But uh, just like other kids looking at other schools, we're looking at other players. You know, that's just part of it. Uh, It's just I think sometimes the players might feel like, you know, they're in control. But I, I think that the coaches need to look out for their program and if a kid is going to kind of toy him around and make sure he gets every single offer under the sun maybe that's not the right kid you know and I think you need to be able to have that backup plan so we have run into that where it's you know you call a kid and just say hey your offer is no longer there because you kind of drug your feet and you waited around too long um, but the way that we kind of do it is you know I'm, I'm not going to hide this from anybody we ask the kid hey, we'll present our offer to you when you're three months away from making your decision. Um, We don't leave the offer out there for a long extended period of time. Um, We prefer to say, hey, what's your timeline? Well, I'm looking to commit at the end of summer. Great. When May hits or June hits, we'll give you your offer. Until then, we're just going to continue to build a relationship with you Um, because there's no point in having an offer out there for a year. I just really don't see the point of that. Um, So we will give it at a closer date so that they have it and they can make their decision from there.
0: That, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. How did you how did you become uh, you know, I know you're you're really well known as a, a very good recruiter, but like what like who is there someone that you like not maybe looked up to or learned under? Or was this, I mean, how did you become such a good recruiter in college baseball?
1: Yeah, uh, I think it was my first staff that I actually played for um when I was at St. Louis U. They kind of took over a program that Wasn't really well known, did not have a great track record. Um, I took a chance on him because, again, they were good recruiters and that's what good recruiters do. Uh, And they built that program up. So Kevin Mulder was the recruiting coordinator at the time. He now runs PBR Missouri and helps out with PBR Kansas. Darren Hendrickson is still the head coach at St. Louis U, but he had a really good track record of winning. And then Will Bradley was the hitting coach who I developed a really close relationship with and we later coached together. And now he's in AAA as the hitting coach for the Tampa Bay Rays. So that staff was really helpful. Um, And then I think the other one that's really helped me throughout my career was Tony Vitello, who's obviously with Tennessee. Um, I got a chance to meet Tony when I was playing in college and then we've kept in contact. And you know, I seek him out for advice and things like that. But I think he's probably one of the best recruiters, if not the best recruiter in the country. Um, he's got a really, really strong track record. So I think all those guys have really helped. And then, you know, obviously you have a lot of close friends in the game that you just kind of pick their brains and kind of just stand next to and, and, and learn different things. I mean, I, we don't have enough time in the day to talk about all the stories that I've just kind of sat there and listened and picked people and and like asked questions. And, um, I think the more knowledge you have, the better coach you'll be, the better recruiter you'll be. And that goes for any industry um so definitely learning as much as you can but there's no science behind this you know this job is uh you're going to make more mistakes than you than you can imagine um it's a very very challenging job um but you know you hope you learn from the mistakes that you've made in the past
0: what's what's the biggest thing that you you've learned since you started recruiting
1: oh man um it's a really good question uh you never really, you you never have seen it all. I mean, and, and um, you're constantly learning and you're constantly evolving and what you think works doesn't always work. So, um, and you have to be open to being outside the box. So it's, you know, you can't just say like, hey, this is the way I've done it. And this is the way we'll always do it. I think you gotta be open because the players are changing and the kids are changing. And if you don't change with them, you're gonna get left behind. Um, so I, I think the biggest thing I've learned is you have to adapt or you're going to die. You know, you're going to be just kind of left in the dust.
0: What, what do you prefer coaching or recruiting?
1: Can I say both? Is that allowed? Cause I mean, honestly, wow. yeah. honestly, like in, in my opinion, um, and I was told this a long time ago, they said, you're going to make it in college baseball, one of two ways. You're going to be a really, really good and not me personally, but they said, this is how you make it in, in college baseball. You're a dynamic recruiter or you're an unbelievable pitching coach. Um, And in in my opinion, I wanna be an unbelievable hitting coach and an unbelievable recruiter. That's what I wanna do. I love to recruit the talent and then develop the talent. Nothing is more satisfying than that. Getting kids to where I didn't go. Um, And for me, it's, it's saying like, okay, this kid can do this right now. What is he gonna do in three years? And I think trying to see how good of a developer you are is just as challenging as being a good recruiter. Um, I know you have to win with talent, but at the same time, you have to develop it. And if you don't, you're going to continue to have 3,000 kids
0: in the transfer portal. (laughs) Yeah, that's a good (laughs) one. (laughs) That's awesome. I love that. Well, let's talk a little bit about like development. I'm curious how you guys do go about it at at Creighton. Uh, You know, I know there's fall ball, which everyone knows about, and I'm sure that's where a a big part of the development happens but also in this in the spring too right when you're facing guys you know day in and day out but what what's a typical fall like um for you guys from like just a a development standpoint
1: yeah so basically it's extremely fundamental um like we hammer home fundamentals and even if you've been in a kid uh, even if you're a kid in the program that's been there for four years um you know we're going to break it down again year by year so um I would say we, the way that our practice is set up is, you know, we have stretch and then the pitchers go do their thing. Uh, the positional players are going through base running. Then we're going through our throwing progression and then we'll meet as a team and go through team defense and we'll pick four or five different things a day that we're going to hammer home, whether that's cuts and relays, rundowns, bunt coverages, um, infield priority, like pop fly priority, um, outfield priority, pop flies, you um, live defense so we'll throw a lot of different things at the guys over the course of the fall just to make sure that we're not going to lose games on simple fundamental lapses um, and I think if anybody knows anything about Creighton is you're going to have to beat them they're not going to beat themselves uh, and I think it's a very simplistic idea but it's also a very complex idea I think it's really easy to kind of just roll the balls out there and go play I think what's challenging is is trying to teach the game of baseball because frankly, Like we're in an industry right now where they play so many games. Um, And I think the fundamentals have kind of gone backwards, just simple catch play. Um, So it's kind of coach's way that he's always done it. Um, Obviously we have our scrimmages and inter squads and outside competition games that we get to see the guys showcase their talent. Um, But it's certainly, we're going to break it down to the umpteenth degree. So after team defense, we'll kind of transition back into individual defense Uh, coach will take the infielders. Our volunteer takes the outfielders. I have the catchers and then coach Mo's got the pitchers. And then after that, for about 20 minutes, we'll hop into, to, you know, the offensive side. Um, obviously you have BP we will do some sort of different variation with that, depending on the day. I'm real big off hitting off machines. I think you have to hit velocity. You have to hit spin. Um, and then, you know, I, I'm a big proponent of failure inside of practice. You know, I think if, if our guys can fail 60, 70, 80% of the time hitting in practice, then the game's going to be a piece of cake. I think if you're just making kids feel really good inside of practice, the game's going to be an absolute struggle and you're going to have to go back to square one and you're going to be more of a uh, sports psychologist than a hitting coach
0: for that matter. How long does it take some of these kids to get used to that failure in practice? I'm sure a lot of them aren't, aren't brought up that way. They're not um
1: and you try to weed that out inside the recruiting process to the best of your ability you really don't know until their back is fully against the wall um and every kid's going to go through it at some point nobody's going to have a career where they don't fail and nobody's going to have a career where they don't fail for an extended period of time um so it's certainly a two-way street of communication it's like hey i'm not trying to kill you guys in practice i'm trying to make it challenging for you so when the game starts we can just let back as a coaching staff and let you go play, but if you're trying to fix everything that you didn't do in practice because they don't know how to deal with the failure, they don't know how to deal with adversity or the quickness of the game, um, then we're doing you guys a disservice. So uh, for us, you know, it's the the new guys. I would say definitely it's challenging. You know, when they haven't seen that hack attack when if you're using a chewed up baseball and the guys are just ripping balls off their ankles and stuff like that because. You know no no machine is perfect uh it's certainly challenging you know we, we've had plenty of rounds where you're throwing that hammer breaking ball they might not even touch it you know and it's like hey let's figure this out you know because this is the time to figure it out it's not when the game starts
0: how do you go about have, helping them with their approach at your home field which i mean it's not a bad home field let's face it it's big part two yeah. At home versus on the road. Like, is there a different mindset or approach just based on how big it is at home versus on the road?
1: Uh, no, I treat it the same. Um, the way I teach hitting is, is you know, you got to match the plane for the pitches that you're going to get. We're really only focused on how hard you hit the baseball and quality of bats. If you hit a ball 400 feet at TD and it flies out, at, or I guess now it's Charles Schwab. Um, if you fly out to, to center field, I mean, and you hit the ball 107 miles an hour, there's nothing really you can do about that. You know, if you go to a, another ballpark and the fence is only 380 to center and it clears it by by 20 feet, then great. But I don't teach fly balls. I don't teach ground balls. I don't teach. I, and I only teach hitting the ball hard and staying level to the baseball. In my opinion, if you teach that swing, it doesn't matter what ballpark you go into. You're going to have success, um, obviously. You can kind of curtail the swing based on the ballpark that you have. So if you do play in a small ballpark, then sure, you might have more of an emphasis on fly balls. The issue with that theory, though, is when you do go to a ballpark like Charles Schwab, that's not going to work. So let's simplify it. Keep, stay level, find the barrel, and have a quality at bat. And if you do that, it doesn't matter what ballpark. The simple philosophy behind it is I want our guys to walk into any ballpark at any time of the year, whether it's early in the year when it's a little bit colder, or later in the year when it's hot against any pitcher. So the guy that's got the stuff or the thumb or lefty that's going to carve you up um, at any time, whether it's day or night. And you're going to have some sort of success. If we can do that and model your swing after that, then you're going to have success for the rest of your career.
0: I love that. I love how you you mentioned simple several times there. I think that's so important in hitting.
1: I couldn't agree more with you. I think we're it's a, it's first off, it's really, really hard. You know, you're talking to a 250, 260 college hitter. So I know it better than anybody. I wasn't a 300 hitter. I failed a lot. Um, it's a really challenging thing. And I think at times we are overcomplicating this. Um, and not to go off on my tangent here, but, you know, a lot of coaches are like, well, it's all, it's all approach and it's all mindset. Or some guys are like, hey, it's all mechanics. And then you got another guy where it's like, hey, it's all just, you know, competing in the box. And in my opinion, I think it's all working together. If your swing sucks and you don't have the proper mechanical foundation, then you're not going to have confidence to execute your approach in the box. If you don't have the confidence to execute the approach in the box, you're not going to compete at a high level. So in my opinion, it all works hand in hand. There's not one that supersedes another. Now, we're not going to talk heavy mechanics when the game starts by any stretch of the imagination. But I think those that just say, hey, this is the one thing that you got to work on. They're missing the boat on. I think it all works hand in hand. And I think the hitting coach that can break it down in a simplistic way, even though it's a complicated skill, are the ones that have a lot of success.
0: Are there certain players on your team that, you know, when they're going up in the box or, you know, on deck or whatever, you're giving, you are giving them maybe something more specific versus someone who maybe is an overthinker and you may keep that a little bit more simple for him.
1: Yeah, I think uh, the simple guy, you know, you just basically say, hey, get in there and get after it. You know, look for that first pitch fastball. Right. That's as simple as it gets. Um, And then you're also saying like, hey, you know, last time you went up there, they shifted you heavy to the pull side. Let the ball travel a little bit. Even think about getting beat and, you know, go the other way with it. Um, So something like that for a simplistic person. Then you got the guy that can handle it. You know, the guy that's super analytical, the guy that's like, hey, give me all the info. And then you can just be like, hey, man, uh, last four out of six times he's gone first pitch breaking ball. Or, hey, every single time with runner in scoring position, they've gone first pitch breaking ball. And then that kid's like, great, I'm sitting breaking ball going up there. You know, there's some guys that just can't do that. Um, And that's fine. You know, we got some guys when I break down a scouting report, they want percentages on what they're getting in certain counts. And then you got the other guy that's like, hey, give me what pitches he throws and how hard it is. And that's all I want to know. Um, and I think that's the great thing about coaching is not everybody's the same. So you can't cookie cut everybody. You have to individualize it and you have to curtail what's going to help that player be successful. Um, and I think that's, that's the fun thing about coaching is figuring out what makes that tick for that certain player. So
0: in, if you have them hitters meetings, how do you you present all the information in all the different ways? And just, it's kind of like a buffet for them. Uh, I used to do it that way.
1: I don't anymore. Uh, I've kind of taken it a step back. I have all the information on my sheets um, on each pitcher and things like that. Track man data and synergy percentages and all that stuff. But really, I'll put it up on video. And we'll say, hey, here's the starter. Here's what he throws. Here's the video that he throws. I'll give my little blurb of two sentences of what each pitch does. And then we'll sit back and watch the video for four or 50 pitches for a starter. So basically, that's going to get you through you know four innings five innings um maybe we won't go that far maybe we'll you know maybe it's less pitches than that i should say but so we'll do the starter and then we'll go through the top four relievers and then from there i'll break them out and say hey go if you want to stay and come talk to me go ahead and then guys can stick behind but you know there was one kid that we faced this year that i think had like 31 or 32 appearances and he only threw 17 or 18 innings because he was strictly a left-handed specialist so I said, hey, we're gonna show this guy, but righties, don't worry about it. You're not gonna face him. Um, but the righties like to watch it anyway, and they're like, Oh, look, he's cupping the breaking ball, you can kind of see that out of the hand. So, like the guys enjoy it. Um, but then you get some guys that are kind of just in the back, they're like, Yeah, I'm not really paying attention.
0: Mm.
1: I like that. What what made you
0: change to that style versus before?
1: I would have guys come back to the dugout and be like, You told me one-one count, he's throwing this. <laughs>
0: it's like,
1: and I think, you know, again, as you kind of evolve as a coach it's like okay maybe you want to give them all the information because you want to be as prepared as possible but perhaps that's not the best way to prepare your guys perhaps we can you know make it even more individualized and say hey wait a minute if they want more they'll come to me like there's a lot of guys that ask for the rotation and then they say hey send me your scouting report and they like to watch it at home and read it at home so just going into the the hitters meeting it's kind of just almost like a refresher you know they're not Fully like, oh my God, I gotta listen to every single thing he said. Mm. Um, and I also think the way our human brain works, the more information you give them, the less they're going to retain it in a short period of time. So I think less sometimes is is better than more.
0: After each season, do you sit back and and have time or do you reflect on on the job that you did and areas that you felt like if you could replay the season over again, you would go back and change?
1: Yeah, it's one of the worst things about being a coach. Um, you know, frankly, you do it after games. You know, it's like, oh man, I wish we talked about this. Or um, and then there's times where it's like, you know what, we covered everything and everything went to a T. You know, there were games where it was like going into it's like, hey, fellas, like you need to jump on them early because this team's dead. And if you let them hang around, they're gonna figure out a way to do it. And then sure enough, it happens. And then your next meeting, your next day, it's like, I told you, you know, like, so that's just as frustrating, but Um, I seek feedback from the players. Um, you know, after the season's over, where it's like, hey, what do you like? What didn't you like? What can we get better at? What do we need to do next year? What are we going to do next fall? Um, and then you also think about it, and it's like, okay, we struggled at this, so that's definitely something that we need to work on next year. Um, so like the hit and run is a big thing for us that we need to get better at. Uh, so it's certainly going to be a talking point. And then I also think, you know, like next year, just simplifying everybody's swing and less movement is better. Um, and, and so I think, you know, dumbing some people down with their stance and their load and things like that, uh, certainly I think about every single day. So even though we're out grinding and on the road and stuff like that, you're in the car in traffic or you're driving long, you know, long time, or you're on an airplane going somewhere, you know, you're constantly thinking about this stuff.
0: So you said next year, some of you guys, you, you they, you felt like they had too much movement in their, in their like load and everything.
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, there's certain people where there were some holes in the swing just because, you know, they would have a little hitch or perhaps it was too much of a hand load or perhaps they didn't do a good job of just getting to a proper launch position or a power position or 50-50 position, whatever, you know, everybody calls it. Um, and so I think if you look at the successful hitters that hit on TV, they all do a, a couple of different things. Their head's really quiet. Uh, they're in their lower half and they get to the same position every single time in order to make an educated decision on whether or not they want to swing. Um, and that goes for college and that goes for the professional players. They all do that. Um, and so the really successful ones have limited movement in their entire load. Um, and so I think it's, it's kind of a common trend and,
0: and uh, it's something that we're constantly working on with our guys. With college summer baseball, yeah, it's interesting because I've talked to some of the coaches I talked to, college coaches, they're going and watching some college summer baseball now too because of the transfer portal, which is interesting. But how do you how do you go about like, like recommending players to certain leagues and whatnot? Is that just based solely based on their numbers? Is it based on where you want them to go from a competition standpoint? And then lastly is do you find that maybe for some players it's more beneficial to just stay back at Creighton and work out? Yeah. Um, So sometimes it doesn't always
1: match up with what they want and what the coaches want. Um, So when we do it, I say, Hey, you know, I'm with the volunteer and you know, we have an Excel spreadsheet. And we say, give us your top three leagues, make it realistic. If everybody puts the Cape Cod league on, we better win the college world series this year. (laughs) Yeah. We have 35 players that are all going to the Cape and this team's going to be really (laughs) special and really good. Um, And so then you got to have some realistic talks with them. You know, it's like, Hey, I personally, I don't think you're good enough to go to the Cape and that's okay. That's not a big deal. Not everybody needs to go to the Cape. Um, There's plenty of draft picks that don't go to the Cape League. So I think some kids want to go to certain parts of the country. Like some kids are like, Hey, I'd really like to live in California for the summer. Great. Then we're going to target the two or three leagues that are in Cali. Um, So it's a combination. What do the kids want? What do we think is best for them? And then the last part is, are they going to get a lot of at-bats or a lot of innings pitched? And you might have some guys where it's like, okay, your Friday guy has the opportunity to go to the Cape Cod League, but he's going to throw 90 innings, so we want him on a temp contract. Throw 20 innings and then get out. Mm-hmm. Um, or you might have that freshman that's only going to get 10 or 15 innings this year, and you want him to go out and get 60 or 70 innings you know, to give him that experience. And then you got the combination of the kid that's a good... Freshman player that had a lot of ABs, but he needs to put on that 15 to 20 pounds, but you still want to get a wood bat in his hand. Um, And so you say, hey, you're going to go out for the first month. We're going to get you your at bats and then we're going to bring you back to campus so you can start working out in the weight room so you can put weight on. So by the time fall ball starts, you're ready to roll. So certainly a lot. And then you got the kid that's just like, hey, coach, I'm beat up. I played every day or I threw a lot. I prefer to stay back and just train. So it's a constant communication with the coaching staff, the player, the athletic trainer, and the weight, the strength coach, and making sure that everybody's on the same page. Now it's really challenging to do that in the fall because you don't know how the summer, you don't know how the spring is going to transpire. So you got to stay in communication uh, with the summer coaches, but there's been plenty of people that I've recommended to leagues and they're like big league you. And they're like, no, he's not good enough to play here. And then they'll call you in April and they're begging for players and that's probably the most frustrating thing of summer ball um, is a lot of times they're hesitant at first and they're like, no, nah, we're good. And it's like, you're going to call me in April. I know you are. Yeah. Uh, so
0: that's definitely a challenge. It seems that the college summer league has declined a little bit, maybe in the past, I don't know, five years or so. Would you agree with that?
1: 100 um, percent. There's more walks. There's more errors. Um, and frankly, I think a lot of the kids are kind of just doing it because they've been told to do it, and they don't really want to be there. Um, and I had this talk with another coach, like, I got super pissed off if my coaches didn't place me, but at a certain point, because I wanted to know where I was going. Um, because summer ball, it's like I don't have to deal with academics, I just go play baseball, I go work out in the morning, I go to the field, and I just play like that's professional baseball, yeah, it's pro ball, yeah, yeah. And I think you got a lot of guys now where it's like, ah, you know, the spring was a grind, I don't really want to go out to summer. I don't really wanna live with a host family. And that was, I think a phenomenal experience. And I met a lot of some really cool people. You get kids from all over, different levels, D3, D2, D1, NAI, JUCO, you're playing with everybody. And now you even have an opportunity to play with some rising freshmen you know, that are coming out of high school. Um, you get to go see a different part of the country. Um, so I think, it's, I think people are missing the boat on it. I get it if you're beat up. I get it if you've played 65 games, and you, you know, you had 275 to 300 at bats. And it's like, I really don't want to go out. I can understand that part, but it's the kid that like threw 10 innings and he's like, nah, I just want to stay back and train. Like, I don't get that yeah. because you still have to compete at the end of the day and throwing a ball into the net or hitting a ball, you know, off a machine in the summer, you're not competing, you know? So I think you still need to have the competition aspect and you kind of just need to
0: open yourself up and just go experience life, man. Yeah, 100% agree. I mean, like, what percentage of players uh, that you have this past year that are playing
1: summer bowl? Not as many as we've had in the past. Oh, really? Um, yeah, so I think we've had some guys. Now, some guys are going out second half of the summer, um, but we don't have as many as we've had in the past, um, and, and some of the guys, we kind of told them, like, hey, second half, come back and come train, and then we've had other guys that are like, hey, stay and train and then go out in the second half, so it's kind of hit or miss. But historically, I would say 80 to 85 percent of our guys go out, um, which is a good number, you know, and you're always going to have that instance where the kid's like, I really need to make money. I have to have a job like we get that. That's the one thing about baseball. that stinks. is like not everybody's on a full ride, so they have to figure it out. And if it's a family that can't afford, you know, the, the tuition on a yearly basis and they have to have their son help out and pitch in, we're understanding of that. You know, we're empathetic to that and we're sympathetic to that. We get it. So um, there's different instances on everybody, but I would say this year it's probably around forty or fifty percent. It's not as many as we had in the past, and you got some guys that you know they're they're training and you know
0: they're doing a variety of different things. Does Creighton have like academic, like private academic money that you guys can give to kids? Because it's being that it is a
1: private school. Yeah, so they are eligible for academic money, and it's kind of on a sliding scale. Um, I think a lot of colleges are going away from the scores, from the ACT scores and SAT scores, which, thank God, it's the dumbest thing we've we've ever done. We're going to judge a kid based on a four-hour test is absolutely amazing to me. Um, So, you know, they're going to go off the reputation of the high school. They're going to go off the classes that you take. I mean, obviously, if you're taking bowling, badminton, and, and, uh, you know, home cooking, you're you're obviously not going to you're not going to wow a lot of the admissions people that work with us, but, uh, you know, they're going to go off, off your transcripts. If you do have good test scores, they'll go off that. Um, we do have the capability of giving some academic money to make it affordable. So we have the ability to stack academic and athletic uh, to make a private institution affordable. And and Creighton's really good. And I'm sure the other you know private institutions are good about giving some academic money to make it affordable because it's not a state school and you're not getting that in-state tuition.
0: Gotcha. Connor. last question for you. I, I I think I may have told you this before when I saw you in the spring, but I, I have family in Omaha. My mom went to Creighton. My aunts all went to Creighton. Uh, uncles, everybody. So I go back to Omaha at least once a year. What's your favorite spot in Omaha?
1: In terms of food or like to hang yeah, out?
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, the Drovers is hard to beat. Um, so I know it's talked about a lot, like on with the baseball writers, when the College World Series is going on. Um, but it's just got this like feel that it's been stuck in like the seventies or eighties. And when you go in there, it's just darkly lit. Like it's not, you know, bright, like my living room or my dining room right now. I mean, it's, it's got low lighting. The bartenders are awesome. They all know you. Um, so you kind of walk in and they're like, Oh, it's the Creighton coach, you know? And so like you strike up a conversation with them and, the food's good. They have a salad bar still, which is hilarious. Um, and the steak is as good as you're going to get. You know, they have that whiskey uh, marinated steak. So I know it's really popular amongst the college baseball writers, but um, that's certainly a good spot. And there's a lot of good Mexican food inside of Omaha. So you can get some really, really good Mexican food around town. And then it's closing. Sadly, it's closing in, I think, a week. But Los Solomio Mio. Um, which is a really good Italian restaurant, and it's really famous because Augie Garrido would go there all the time um, when he brought his teams from Texas. Um, and I know Skip Johnson kind of tweeted about it when he took his Oklahoma team there because he called it Skip Spot or he called it uh, Augie Spot. So um, that's really good, big style Italian portions. I think they've been in business for like over 50 years. So they're cl- they're sadly closing, um, but you know there's a lot of good low key food spots in town. So. Um, but I really like the drover if you want a good steak. So that's a good spot. Um, if you're in town visiting, you got to go to the zoo.
0: You that's can right. they
1: there. there. The, the zoo is unbelievable. It's, it's really cool. They have a, they have an aquarium inside of there. So I'm a big zoo guy. My wife makes fun of me all the time, but, um, you know, it's definitely a good spot to go to. Awesome, man. Connor, appreciate the time. man. it has been a lot of fun. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on Patrick.